and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And today we are turning back to Germany. Uh, on November 24th, Germany's incoming government unveiled its coalition treaty after nearly two months of intense negotiations. Striking a balance between the principles of the Social Democrats, the Greens, and the Liberal Free Democrats, this highly anticipated document outlines Germany's key priorities for the years to come. In the fields of security and defense policy, adver- observers on both sides of the Atlantic have been anxious to see how the new government would plan to address a number of outstanding issues with implications for NATO and the European Union, including Germany's participation in nuclear sharing, its defense budget, and its approach towards China and Russia. Today, we are really pleased to discuss the treaty, um, and we're happy to welcome both Christian Molling and Claudia Major to the podcast to discuss all of this and more. Um, so welcome back to our power couple uh, who has been here on multiple occasions. We're so happy to have both of you. Thanks for having us again. Yeah, thanks. Uh, by way of very brief background, Christian Molling is the research director at the German Council on Foreign Relations, where he also heads the security and defense program. And Claudia is the head of the International Security Division at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. And her work focuses on security and defense policy in Europe and the transatlantic context. Okay, so very open-ended question. I'm hoping you two can break it down for us uh, and tell us what is it that we need to understand about this coalition treaty. So Claudia, maybe we can start with you. Yeah, maybe start with a kind of quick, where do we actually stand at the moment? Um, So the treaty, the coalition treaty um, has been published last Wednesday, 24th of November. Um, It will be approved or it's now currently being approved by the Green Party and the Social Democrats Party will have to approve it in order to actually this become really the basis for the new government. The idea is that uh, the new parliament will elect the new chancellor in the week starting the 6th of December. That was the plan and according and until now the whole process really goes according to plan. That's already something uh, something remarkable and what is also interesting is that is really a process that has been run with lots of respect and discretion. So um, it was quite a good working atmosphere and um, the three parties really try to, to, to stick to the goals they had, um, they had in mind. We had about 300 experts and several separate working groups uh, working on climate, on Europe, on defense, on many issues that all handed in their chapters and that together forms a coalition treaty. That also explains why we have sometimes some overlap. There's a little bit of Europe in the defense chapter. There's lots of Europe in the Europe chapter, obviously. Um, So there is quite some patchwork that is now brought together in the coalition treaty. As it stands now, the foreign ministry will go to the Greens and the defense ministry will go to the Social Democrats. So this is where where we stand now. If all things goes well, and this is how it looks at the moment, we will have a new chancellor, Olaf Scholz, in the week of 6th of December. What is important, um, if you look on that coalition treaty from the outside, so not from Germany, is to remember that the target group for that coalition treaty is actually the domestic audience and the party base. The party base has to approve that coalition treaty, not the international partners. That means that the benchmark is the election program and the parties, 
not the expectation of our international partners. partners. That's really important because the party program will compare the coalition treaty with what was written in the initial party programs. And they obviously want to find their ideas there again. So it's really important to think about that logic to understand this treaty is mainly to be understood in a, in a domestic logic. Of course, there is an international ambition in it. Of course, there is an international logic. And of course, we all know that our international partner will read that treaty with a lot of attention and they will look for certain things like nuclear sharing, like arms exports, like industrial cooperation. There is an awareness for that. Uh, and there is a strong international ambition in the treaty, for example, with regard to Europe. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that parties have promised something in their election program and the party base now wants to see what's actually in. And that's, that's really an important reminder. Christian, over to you. And maybe to add <clears throat> a little bit on the, on the balance that goes beyond, let's say, defense proper. So the MOD, as Claudia said, is going to the Social Democrats. Um, the Social Democrats will be the important party for security and defense writ large. So it's not only the MOD that the Social Democrats will have, it's also the Ministry of Interior. So if you think hybrid or whatever, that's the responsible department over there. And they will have DEFCO, so uh, Development Corporation as well. So it's three ministries, which are, you could say, two-thirds of the 3D approach, plus the Chancellor's Office, which in core is driving the foreign policy with regard to the 50 most important countries and dossiers. So if done well, and here we talk about the good old comprehensive approach, uh, the social democrat-led government can make a difference in security and defense policy if they want. The Greens will have the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and they also will have the Ministry of Economics, which is then important for technology to a certain extent and defense exports. So there you basically see what uh, the wider picture, the liberals will have no say for the moment in government with regard to foreign affairs and uh, security and defense. Uh, I think that's, a, that's the kind of thing they can, they can try and pull the plug. I mean, Olaf Scholz has demonstrated last, uh, last period effectively what you can kind of, you know, where you can throw things into the machinery and stop it by that. Um, but I guess that's the liberals have been defense friendly. I guess it's more the question of the general money that is available. Um, and that, I guess, one of the, the first of the two main topics in the uh, negotiations uh, in the defense, uh, among the defense negotiators, uh, we had two overarching topics. One was the nuclear question and the other one was the defense budget question. Defense budget question, uh, there's no 2%. Uh, but that is not a surprise because 2% has been toxic since the last election campaign in Germany. Um, and I mean, I guess almost all advisors, and we as well, have said, okay, you don't need to have 2% as long as you can look to the output and make it kind of, you know, ensure our allies that we will focus on an output and not make kind of lukewarm uh, this and that thingies on on, um, on on the on the defense budget. I said that's kind of that's one big topic. The other big topic was the nuclear question, the question of the DCA, the defense, uh, the, the the nuclear capable aircraft, uh, and the question of nuclear sharing vis-a-vis -vis the question of whether Germany should join the nuclear ban treaty. Well. That 
Thank you very much. That's uh, that's so much to to, to cogitate over. Uh, that, I just don't even know where to start. But but um, but I, a couple things. One is, and this isn't my question, but just to throw it on the table, it might be good to refresh our listeners on the SPD and uh, and their leadership and what they might do and and what they might think about when they take on that defense mantle. You know. Uh, what would it what would it be like? Uh, and what's where is where is the SDP in in, in that in that um, SPD uh, in that uh, realm? Uh, but my my question though goes to the two percent, and I think what we might want to do. I mean, this is uh, everyone, of course, is watching this, but just to kind of unpack the the terminology. So um, essentially, what 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 we didn't see in this document was a pledge. That and, and using some kind of wording that Germany would um, would would make progress towards or achieve the two percent. So the two percent itself, as a figure, as a goal, wasn't part of it, and it wasn't part of it last time either. Um, and um, and uh, and of course, uh, that's not too much of a surprise. But but was there something in there that said uh, be, between the lines or something like that that said, uh, however, you know, Germany will continue to increase defense spending in the years to come uh, to meet our obligations. The, the security environment has changed, et cetera, et cetera. And we will be putting money each year towards that and in increasing amounts, et cetera. So how, how did they did, did they say that? And how did they say that kind of in between the lines without using the 2%? Maybe I would I would go one step back because I'll be really going to the details uh, and just very briefly say that uh, Christian hinted upon that the overall result of what is in the treaty so far in the security and defense chapter, I think it's pretty good. There's one sentences which I personally dislike. That's the one about the ban treaty, but overall I think it's a very solid political text and also one with which our partners can live. Um, and if I come to the 2%, the financing you hinted, and I think I would, I would kind of have three baskets in where I put the results of that coalition defense chapter. The first basket is the good news. That's about nuclear sharing. That's about the role of NATO. That's about threat analysis and deterrence. And I come back to that. Then it's the one not so good news, which we all expected. That's a ban treaty. That's a more restrictive export policy. And then I would put a, a third basket, which is things that are not really mentioned, um, which are a little hidden and which we could talk about later. I think that have not been touched upon because maybe the Germans are not yet there, new technologies, or because politically it's too toxic, that's a 2%. So I think, but overall, I really think we have a good political result with the exception of the Bank Treaty. If I come to the financing, the 2% are in Germany extremely toxic. You can't mention, it, it would not make it into such a treaty. But you have, for example, um, you have various sentences at various places hinting upon it. For example, we want to fulfill NATO planning goals and invest accordingly. The armed forces needs to be equipped um, correctly and credibly in terms of personnel, finances, and equipment. And that hints both at the finances, but even more importantly, a little bit hidden to our red procurement system. And I think we mentioned that uh, earlier when we talked about the elections in, in this spring and this podcast, that our procurement system is totally wrecked. And we have a problem with, with actually planning and then um, working the plans through our system. So there is the idea not only of accordingly finance the armed forces, but also to actually reform our procurement and planning system. 
it's put in very mild sentences, um, but this is actually what is hidden behind. So no 2%, but a commitment to NATO planning goals, to a, to a credible, reliable financing of the armed forces and fulfilling our obligations in the EU and NATO. So you could of course say 2% is not in, nobody expected the 2% to be in. Because again, as I said, politically, you can't sell it in Germany. It doesn't make sense. But just as a brief reminder, it wasn't in, in the treatment four years ago, in the treaty four years ago. So I think it's also kind of good to remember that maybe it's just something you don't put in, but if you do it, I mean, the German defense budget has increased over the last years. Um, if you look at the last almost 10 years, 2013, about 33 billion, now we are at about 50 billion. I don't think that Germany, if you look at the financial planning, will reach the 2% anytime soon. But if we would manage to keep the increase we had over the last years, I would be happy. The first test would be the next financial uh, forecast for the next four years, which we will publish, which, which the government will publish, I think, in March next year. So until then, we can all believe in it, but the real proof will be the next financial planning and next spring. I would recommend that you take that uh, the German government take what you just said and make that into talking points for their perm rep to use at NATO. <laughs> uh, as as, as, as uh, you did a great job explaining that and the context behind that. And I think uh, that'll be the job of your ambassador to, to, to do exactly what you did to, to you know, keep NATO back, uh, the US back uh, to allow Germany to take forward you know, what you wanna do on procurement. I mean, honestly, if you look at the NATO chapters in that treaty, they are really strong. It, it recognizes NATO as central pillar and indispensable element of our security. So the NATO language is actually very positive. Um, also in terms of defense analysis, it recognizes uh, the ongoing threat I quote for Germany and Europe. And this is why we need a credible deterrent. So actually in terms of security and defense analysis, this treaty is, very outspoken and very clear. Um, I didn't expect sentences like this, where it really says Germany and Europe facing an ongoing threat and we need credible deterrence. Also dialogue, as we always do in Germany. But the, 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 the deterrence element and the threat element is really clearly phrased. And that's significant, particularly given that the Greens are part of this. And, uh, and, and we've heard in the past, uh, you don't you don't hear that kind of language coming from the from the greens at least i haven't and so that's that's quite significant yeah if we have time maybe we can pull that thread given what's happening on the border around ukraine and kind of talk about what that means and what germany would might be willing to do mm -hmm. to kind of deter some of this but i wanted to pick up jim's question um, on kind of the the spd's views on security and defense now that we know that they have this ministry and and the way that you laid it out christian can you just remind listeners kind of some of the key highlights or things people should know in terms of how the spd talks about security and defense and what some of their priorities um, might be in the coming years yeah um that's not so easy to say one has to say because the social democrats are very much split like the greens are split so it's it's a rift between the different party wings um, on a more, let's say, uh, hawkish or a not so hawkish, more peaceful side. Um, I think many may remember the Social Democrats for especially the head of the political party trying to pull Germany out of the nuclear sharing arrangements and trying this politically or through technical backdoors by, um, by prolonging 
um, the replacement of the dual capable aircraft or tornado uh, by a US fighter um, as long as possible so that we basically we technically die out of the, the nuclear sharing. Uh, so that, that's one part of the social democrats. There's another part which is diehard transatlanticist and fully recognizes um, the, the need to ensure our allies and to deter Russia. Um, uh, and now we currently don't know who will be the minister as for this for this day, and we don't know who will be the political leadership. So Secretary of State will be all renewed um, one after the other. Maybe even uh, the chief, that's kind of, it's called inspector general, but the chief, the chief of staff, you would say in, in, in the US, so that the highest ranking military general uh, is, as far as I can see, will be replaced. Um, so you, you have a kind of complete reshuffle of the system. So very much depends on, yeah, you come, um, come in with new ideas. Can you bring it into the MOD? Um, and not sure how good your uh, ministry works, but in our ministry, it's really if you if you lose the contact to the soldiers and to the to the uh, to the people in the administration, you are basically on a different planet, and you don't get this ministry working. So it very will very much depend on the right mixture of people and advisors uh, to the new minister, whom we currently don't uh, don't know. We also may have kind of bad um, kind of remembrance of social democrats, especially influencing not the MOD, but the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So the former Minister uh, of Foreign Affairs, Heiko Maas, was um, very much under the impression or influence of his own party, limiting his room of maneuver tremendously. So there's a big question mark. We have a, the, the coalition agreement is an agreement, it's paper, and it will basically uh, depend now from day one on how they implement it. The good thing is we will have very soon proof of this pudding because we have ongoing crisis around Europe. So there is no, not a hundred day thingy for us. It's basically from day one on, we have Ukraine going on, uh, Belarus, the Russians, we have um, Africa, et cetera, et cetera. We have cyber, uh, cyber security issues going on immediately. So there is, so you can choose and you have, you can't choose. You will have to pick plenty of, of, uh, of issues uh, to deal with as a Minister of Defense from day one on. So now that we've kind of talked about Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, these things on multiple occasions now, for people who are looking for clues in the treaty document about what the approach towards adversaries, Russia and China might be, what, what's in there? What can people, what should people be paying attention to? My sense is, I mean, you know, from the Twitter sphere and other things is that people expect a lot of the same, that this will be lar in large part a continuation from the last government, especially in the way that they're approaching Russia, maybe to a lesser extent China, I'm not sure. But I don't know, did you, what did you see in there that suggests what the approach might be? And I, I mean, to your point, Christian, I mean, this is an immediate thing. This is happening now. It could be in coming months where we see a much more offensive military operation into Eastern Ukraine. And so what is it that you think this coalition would be willing to do, whether it's sanctions, uh, providing lethal assistance to the Ukrainians? Are there any clues in the treaty that suggests what the approach might be? If you 
if you just look at, at what it's written on China and Russia and you link it back to what the parties have said in the election campaign and what they say kind of broadly in the debate, um, it's both considerably tougher on both Russia and China. Um, and, and again, if you look at, at the wording um, and you link it back to what, for example, the chancellor candidate Annalena Baerbock or Habeck, what they said, there really is a change. There's a change with regard to Russia. Um, there's not longer talk about a good relationship. There's talk about a kind of stable relationship, but there's a very strong criticism on domestic um, oppression on human rights, um, uh, on Ukraine, on how, how Russia's behavior in Ukraine. Um, so there is far more direct criticism than we had in the past. Um, so I think I would really, I would really underline that. So the, it's about stable and constructive relationship, but not longer about a good relationship. Um, there's also a kind of mo more transformative and bold approach. Um, so I would be, I mean, the question is obvious how this is going to be implemented. If you looked into social cases like Ukraine, like Nord Stream 2 and all that, but the ambition is clearly in the text. And that's even more perspective, perceptive if you look um, on China. Um, the, it's more, they, they adopted this kind of three-step approach um, of uh, um, a partnership competition and systemic rival, which we didn't have in the past. Um, they want to reduce strategic dependence. They insist very much on human rights. Taiwan is mentioned for the first time ever in such an agreement. Um, and the tone there is definitely sharper. So I really see here a difference to the, um, uh, to the last time under Merkel um, and the willingness to set a new course, a new course on China. Again, the question is how this is going to play out in real politics that already finding such a strong stance on things with regard to China to underline the, the rivalry, to underline the human rights issues, to um, consciously mention Taiwan uh, are steps that really are different to the previous approach that the government, that the previous government had with regard to China. And do you think that the green, is that was that a lot of what you just said, Claudia, do you think that that's really an example of the the impact of the Greens in terms of the government. I mean, you know, the um, there the emphasis on human rights, the toughness on Russia. Um, do you think that when you look at the three parties uh, in the coalition, the Greens really have their fingerprints on a lot of of this kind of uh, of German foreign policy? Interestingly, and I'm curious to see what Christian says. I think particularly when it comes to questions of international order. Um, of law and human rights, the Greens team up perfectly with the Liberals. Um, it's actually both parties who are very strong on questions of international law, um, the respect of rules and human rights. This is where I actually see the, the kind of fingerprint of both parties. Um, and they also made it very strong in the, in the debates we had here in Germany. So I think it's both who, who brought in their ideas here. Well, if I could just jump in and play in this a little bit more, you know, I think a lot of our listeners aren't so familiar with the liberals. Um, you know, the Greens are kind of well known, probably stereotypical, probably for certain members of the generations that are older that look on the Greens as tree huggers from way back, you know, a communist or whatever they were being painted as. 
Um, but uh, but when you talk about the liberals, the third party, um, there, I think I'm there. That's probably a bit more of a mystery. Would you like to talk about them just a little bit? I mean, they haven't they haven't made um, foreign security policy uh, any of their pillars of uh, of the election campaign. They have like two three really outstanding people on foreign affairs, uh, senior people in the party. Um, but um, they have chosen um, for not going uh, into any of the, the relevant ministries. So that's, uh, if you look into the security defense, that's for the moment. I can imagine that um, one of the senior parliamentarians will go to chair the, um, the foreign affairs committee, which would be interesting to have her. Um, but still there, we, we would have to see uh, how it goes. Yeah, they have the, the liberal, all the, the kind of the liberal spirit also has a spill over into the international sphere, um, but not that kind of, you know, that they thought that their lines of business would be managed in the international domain. Uh, to a certain extent that I even go, got so far that they have been very EU critical, which didn't meet very well with the social democrats and with the uh, and with the Greens. Uh, that was interesting. So another reason, I guess, for them not to go into any of the and into the international ministries, because they would basically have an incoherence or a clash possibly on the cabinet table here. Uh, on the, I mean, just to keep going with this Russia piece, because that's taking up a significant amount of my time and headspace lately. I mean, you talked about a tougher, kind of tougher language in the document. It sounds like, I mean, here in the United States, right, we're talking about trying to have a stable and predictable relationship with Russia. It sounds like that's the thrust of the document. But here we have a Russia that's supporting a manufactured migrant crisis. We have the military buildup and some very kind of credible warnings about potential military aggression into Eastern Ukraine. You have Russia kind of aggravating the gas crisis, breaking off relations with NATO, uh, supporting Serb nationalism in the Balkans. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the state of discourse is on the Russia piece of this and what, you know, is it still the mentality of the kind of co new coalition that a stable relationship with Russia is actually possible, given what we're seeing, not just internationally and in all of these, this more kind of aggressive uh, antagonistic posture, but also domestically. I mean, right, I, I know that there's a part in the in the treaty document that I think talks about engaging more with the Russian diaspora community and trying to do more on that human rights part. So that certainly is in there, but is it still your sense that this coalition is believes that a stable relationship with Russia is possible given what we're seeing? And then my little additional question is where does Nord Stream 2 fit into all of this? Uh, is you know is would is there discussion would would this new coalition even consider uh, you know taking Nord Stream two offline should Russia uh, go into Eastern Ukraine and then I mean these are a lot of pieces trying um, you know you can respond to it how you want you know just four days ago or so Angela Merkel was talking about if there's more Russian aggression in Eastern Ukraine that EU sanctions need to be on the table do you think the new coalition will be of a similar mindset? Just how 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 much of a response? How much do you do you expect to see from this new coalition in in order to try to deter what we think you know is a potential um, scenario of 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 renewed Russian aggression in Eastern Ukraine? 
Yeah, maybe I start um, <clears throat> on the um, on the re stable relationship with Russia. Um, I think the the text or elements of the text read soul searching on that, and uh, I would read the Social Democrats into that. Um, we know that the relationship is shipwrecked completely, and it is um, it is still the hope that through civil society contacts we could possibly, you know, keep the time and play the time and hope that we that we get into a, a better future. But this is a principle of hope. This is not the principle of uh, of trust. There is no trust in there for Russia. Um, and on the same side, I mean, Claudia mentioned it already. Um, there is uh, the, the the very strong line of a continued threat to Germany. So who is that? Uh, that's not Switzerland, and that's not the, the Netherlands or France. That is pretty much Russia. Um, and we know this from. I mean, we are on a, like you are. We are on a daily cyber attack from the Russians, and from information warfare. So that's something which is which is happening here. From that point of view, um, you know every. Everybody, or kind of, if you're in, in politics, you have to kind of think what you have said last day, and you know what you kind of feel responsible for. I think it's so difficult for for almost all the parties, at least for the Social Democrats and the Liberals, to change their mind on North Stream Two. Um, it's, I mean, everybody hopes that it just goes away because it was a, a formidable mismanagement and miscalculation of what we are in there. I mean, Merkel made a statement about China saying that we have been blue-eyed. Um, I think she would, if one would ask her, possibly say the same in some, in some years' time about North Stream 2 and the ability to, to trigger us by that. Um, but I think North Stream 2 uh, will we'll try to keep it off the table as long as possible. But as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is in the green hands and the Chancellor's Office is not a, uh, not, not a, a tree huggers uh, uh, wing of the Social Democrats, I can imagine that people really try to be very serious about Russia on, uh, on these things, very clearly. Um, on the diaspora thing, and uh, that's something that you have to cut out. I can't read my, my own uh, lines here, so maybe it's better Claudia takes over. Yeah, I think to, to the Russia question, two, two points. Um, it's going to be important not only who gets what ministry or who gets what job in, in the ministries, as Christian said, but also the new party leaders. The Social Democrats um, are going to get a new party leader. Um, and one of the person, or the last thing, but who's likely to be it, um, is thought of being rather soft on Russia. So the question is how this all plays together. Um, uh, so the first weeks of the new government will be really rocky when they kind of high principles actually meet reality. And that will be difficult on China, on Russia, on many issues. So the question of personnel um, is crucial. If you look at the, at the coalition treaty and you, you, you listen to the debate in the moment, we always come back to the old German preference for the Hamel approach, so deterrence and dialogue. And if you look in the coalition treaty, you have the sentences um, in view of the ongoing threat um, and recognizing the security worries of our Central and Eastern European partners, Germany recognizes the necessity of credible deterrence and dialogue. So you actually have everything in. You have deterrence in and you have dialogue in. But again, what do those countries worry about? It's Russia. So I think there is actually a lot of a kind of hinting at Russia, but the question is how 
this Hamel approach can actually play out if we also know that the interest of Russia in those dialogue has been really limited, if you look over the last months. Um, so you can offer as much dialogue as you want if the other side doesn't seem to be interested. So I think Hamel will stay with us. The question of personnel, and I think something our allies will watch a lot is what we are going to do in NATO. And this is why this kind of question, are we going to fulfill our NATO goals is so important. Are we going to stick to nuclear, nuclear sharing is so important. Are we really going to decide about the succession of our dual capable aircraft, the tornadoes soon in this new government is so important. So on the one hand, we can talk a lot or the new German government can talk a lot, but it will also be measured in what are you actually doing in NATO? Are you really going to fulfill what you said or are you going kind of question in fact what you promised on the rhetorical level. So um, I think very much soul searching, very much Hamel, and, and we have to see how this kind of high principled touch reality. Also, I, I finish on that. The new German government starts in say early middle of December. This is exactly when the French president is going to give his speech about the priorities of the French EU presidency. And a little bit later, he will enter the election campaign for the French presidential elections. So we have a German government searching its way, and we have in parallel a French government or French president who is going to be enormously active and committed to have a successful election campaign and a successful EU presidency. And this is, to be honest, quite a challenging mix and a different, I would say, <laughs> terms of levels of energy when those two governments have to agree. Wow, that's I, I was just imagining that myself. I mean, that, that's going to be a such a unique thing to watch. I mean, that's one thing about Andrea and myself is we can sit back and have our popcorn and watch this unfold, uh, this very interesting political uh, melange there that's going to happen just the way you described it. It's going to be just fascinating. I, I, I'm looking forward <laughs> to seeing what happens. So a couple of things. One is just, just to put them on the table at some point, it'd be interesting to hear what you all think the first big decision or first big crisis will be for the new government. What do you think it will be? What do you think it will be? So I'm just going to lay that on the table and ask my question, which is, as you went through the document, um, what did it say about U.S.-German bilateral relations? I mean, I wouldn't necessarily expect that to be a big part of this document because it was domestic-oriented and party-oriented and um, election campaign-oriented. It wasn't necessarily a, you know, a document that went through all aspects of German foreign policy. But was there an, something in there that referred to uh, the German-U.S. relationship and its current status and an, an intent to strengthen things, et cetera? Or that really wasn't up and something that would be appropriate for a document like this. Maybe starting with the transatlantic relationship, it's actually the first partner that is mentioned outside the European Union. So it's really a clear kind of number one, if I, if I could say that. Um, and it reads the transatlantic partnership and the friendship with the US is a central pillar of our international action. Uh, we want to renew and we kind of put new dynamic into that transatlantic relationship with the US and Canada. Um, and we want to make it, we also want to, to kind of shape it in a European way. 
um, together for international rule-based order uh, against authoritarian developments and, and, and all that. So there is quite a, and then there's commitment to cooperation with regard to climate, human rights, uh, global health, uh, trade, disarmament. So the whole package um, on what, what transatlantic relationship should focus and in a very positive spin, I would say. Um, but again, what is interesting, um, it's, um, it, it very quickly gets a European twist. So it's very quickly, we want to do that in a kind of European um, lens. And this actually fits nicely with the, with the Europe chapter in that coalition treaty, where there's a very strong focus of enabling Europe about strategic sovereignty. Hey, a new word. It's not strategic autonomy. It's not European sovereignty. It's strategic sovereignty. Um, it, it sounds nice, yeah. Um, and th this European dimension is extremely strong in the treaty. So it's about defining German interests in the light of European interests. It's about taking up our responsibility in Europe. It's about strengthening Europe. So finding that European dimension here again with regard to the transatlantic relationship is not surprising. But I think it's worth underlining to understand that this new government really embeds strongly its external, its international action into a European context. There is this one fascinating sentences. Um, we strongly commit to Europe in a kind of serving function. We want to serve the European idea, which I find really fascinating language in, in such a treaty. Hmm. Christian, you can feel free to add, but also kind of on this, the well, the French term strategic sovereignty or strategic autonomy, I'm sorry. Do you think that this coalition, that, that do you think that the French will find a more willing partner in this effort, or how do you see that playing out? Um, so the, the term is actually a, a mixture, and I guess a little bit of a you know pleasing all sides um, of the uh, of the Atlantic and especially of the Rhine. Um, but I must say, I see that in this government. The French government will have less friends than within the last government for various reasons. Um, that's the case. But if, if you kind of look into the, those people who are dedicated to the, I would say, the classical Franco-German friendship, a kind of, a, I would say, kind of an outdated way of looking into the, the bilateral Franco-German relationship, there are very, very few, if not, if any, if any. Um, I hope that we will find a, a, a very constructive way within the next weeks and months to come, because it's a very short time frame that we have, to reshape and restart the relationship that really focuses on German and common interests with the French. This can be a certain shock to the French, uh, because that's not how it has worked over the last 16 years. The last 16 years, the question of, so what does France want has been very often on, on top, uh, or it was, at least was perceived by many here in Berlin to be on top uh, before we ask the question of what does Germany want? Um, so I'm, I'm a little bit worried for the moment that the German pendulum would swing into a more, okay, now it's Germany first, where at the same time, also the pendulum in Paris swings more towards, so and what's Paris first? And do we, do we wanna do it alone? Which is a bad timing uh, with regard to the beginning of our government, the pre French presidential elections, but also in a short, in, in the medium and long-term perspective, um, I guess it still holds true that Europe can't move, especially at continental Europe, if France and Germany are in two different camps. 
This holds true for, for, uh, for the next decade, I would be pretty sure. Simply if you take a look into the political and economic power that these two countries have, and also the power in blocking each other. Maybe just to add on that one, um, I think I mentioned initially that there's lot, lots of fronts in the Europe chapter in the coalition treaty. It's even what drives us is Franco-German relation, something like that is in the Europe chapter. In the defense chapter, you really have to make a, an effort to find France. Um, and that also says something about the, the maybe tiny but still important security and defense chapter where there's lots of things in, but the this kind of apparently crucial Franco-German relationship for Europe is hardly touched or in a very, you kind of feel it in many difficult topics. Um, in the treaty, the new government wants to restrict arms exports. That's something that France is really looking with, looking at with lots of inquietude, lots of worries, because their fear that the common defense industrial product uh, projects like the future combat air system or the future mine battle tank might suffer for more restrictive um, export rules. Um, so there are, there are several things where, where you feel, it's not there, but you feel the tension actually upcoming in the Franco-German couple in the defense industrial or in the defense area to court. Um, and the kind of traditional logic that France and Germany don't agree, but they make an effort for the greater European good to find an agreement. I have the impression over the last years that that dynamic was getting so much weaker. Um, but you still need the two to, to agree and to kind of find a new dynamic for Europe. So I think that's really one of the, the topic that worries me the most um, to, to kind of get those two countries, keep them together, particularly if they now have political agenda calendars that they are so, so different. Yeah, I mean, just to echo what Jim said, it's going to be really fascinating to watch I and mean, you get, you know, it's a very different narrative coming out of Paris. And so to see how those two will meet or not is going to be really interesting to watch. Um, I want to I remind you of Jim's question or the issue that he put on the table of, of the first crisis. But before we get to that, I do have one question and, and this might lead you to repeat some of the points you've already made. But um, what are where what are the areas where you think we'll see the most continuity from the last government and what are the areas where you expect that we'll see the most change and claudia i know you were saying that you were looking back at the last um, coalition treaty four years ago so i don't know if you want to go first talking about some clues that you might see there but i think you know that's a big question that a lot of us are wondering is how much continuity and how much change If I look at the treaty as it stands now, and again, it's on the paper, um, that's a promise, whether it's going to be implemented, how it's going to be implemented, is it's going to be financially kind of supported, we don't know. So the only thing we can do now is look at the paper and compare to, to what happened before. Um, but again, I think it's really important to give this government a chance to look at the next financial planning and then to see what's really happening. So give them to some extent the benefit of the doubt. But if I look at the, at the treaty, I see a lot of continuity uh, and I see a little bit of change, a little bit of change in, from my personal perspective, critical, rather negative way um, is the ban treaty. 
And to be honest, that's the only new topic. All the other defense topic, 2%, nuclear sharing, arms exports, industrial cooperation, Russia, China is not really new. We, we know all the speaking points. The only real new topic is indeed the Bund Treaty. So this is this is change. Uh, Germany, with all the caveats, um, talking to allies and, and, and that, Germany joining the conference as, a, as an observer, that's for me a, a change. Um, another change is that Germany is now accepting armed drones. With a long debate, not, not really helpful debate in Germany, but we had a long debate in Germany about armed drones, and that's in. That's the change. Um, another change is the announcement to restrict arms exports more, and that's in two avenues. They want to have a national law that kind of clearly states what to do and what, what to export and what not. Um, and they want also to have a legislation on the EU level. That's also new. Um, there are some hidden statements on the better financial planning for the armed forces and the better procurement system, but that's that's kind of hidden in the sentences and that's really kind of nerdy stuff. So I think if you look at kind of more political level, these are really the new things for me, the bond treaty, um, the export, the armed drones, and um, the kind of clear commitment to procure the dual capable aircraft as a tornado succession, succession, succession sorry. Um, which kind of technically shows the nuclear sharing arrangements. That's for me the, the kind of most important things. Um, Christian, anything you would add on there? Um, maybe I, I would make a, a division more into good continuity and bad continuity. So we have good continuity in, in, in many of the, the points that Claudia has made, which I would say many including us have been worried that uh, that we basically see things you know slippering away and we would have to to fight um, fight our way back into uh, into the current status quo the status quo is a given that's for most of the areas that that's that's for sure some some things there is a potential a potential for change I would say um, a little bit we are we will look into expeditionary operations so international peacekeeping because of Afghanistan uh, short term, the, the bailout, but also the long term perspective of assessing it, and we will possibly look into all the different international operations that we're currently undertaking. This will have an impact on the future, not in principle on the future of crisis management, whether we do it or not, but on the political atmosphere, how we do it, and and also on on the other question uh, that is important, that is, do we I more into coalitions of the willing or not. The interesting thing is from, the, from an international point of law, it would be possible to have a more relaxed regime in Germany on um, coalitions of the willing, as long as they are part of an international uh, engagement. Um, the political atmosphere at home is, we only do it in uh, the EU, we need a UN mandate. Uh, if it's NATO, could be all right but nothing like um, the ISIS thing, which is kind of seen as, a, as highly problematic. Um, so there will be, it will be the, the atmosphere from this assessment that I guess will very much influence the, the, future, the future practice. Um, and I guess on, the, on, on uh, uh, maybe I'm going into the, the, the tech uh, perspective as well, the, the bad continuity 
is what Claudia already said about the drone thingy. It's not it's not the drone itself. It's the kind of the, the hypercritical perspective of Germans on technological innovation, where at the same time it enables our way of of war fighting, um, and we we hate it so much. Where I mean, it took us it took us a decade to now buy something which is already outdated. Uh, if you compare that with the innovation cycle uh, of new technologies, this is a horrible debate we'll be up for. And I'm, I'm very much worried about this because mi military innovation or technological innovation is only seen from a normative point of view. So that, that's an issue of arms control. You know, we need to curb it. Uh, there's no discussion of using it. You find it somewhere in the document, but very, very kind of, you know, somewhere in the, uh, in, in the sentences. And that's something where we at the same time look into a systemic battle with the or systemic competition with the Chinese. Um, we see even our partners looking into the, the positive or constructive use of emerging technologies, knowing about all the ambiguities. We say, no, it's ambiguous. Therefore, we don't want to employ it. We want to stay pure. And that's the biggest problem, I guess. It's kind of the, the, the will to stay on the right side of history and to remain pure in almost theological terms. Wow. Well, you you just raised some very critical things. I know we're almost out of time, and I, I won't hog hog this, uh, Andrea, because I know she's brimming with questions. But you were mentioning German participation in coalitions of the willing and crisis management, and this is that's a big deal on either limiting that or whatever, and how that then shapes the German armed forces, and that also shapes. German-U.S. and German-NATO relations too. That's that's really huge. Well, let me let me just um, uh, ask one thing, just to get straight in my mind. When you mentioned Afghanistan, did, 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 did is was it in the context that Germany should look into what happened in Afghanistan and how this should impact how Germany takes part in in other out of area operations? Was was that the point that this, there needs to be an investigation? In fact, we have two investigations. We will have a parliamentary investigation uh, directly into the into the evacuation operation in Afghanistan because um, the the impression not only I have but many here share that that was a complete state failure by the national uh, command and control structure here at home and on the political level down to the lowest levels. So that was a, a meltdown of our crisis management capability in, in terms of command and control. This is where people will look into. That will be um, a very interesting thing. What you can read from, from public sources, uh, it will be devastating for those who have taken uh, res uh, responsibility and taken decisions or even not, especially not taking decision. Another German disease, not taking decisions and then wondering about the consequences. Uh, we will have a longer, um, uh, and a different type of committee mixed between parliamentarians and external um, external experts on Afghanistan and I guess writ large crisis management engagement. So that will look into the whole history of Afghanistan with a view on how should that inform the future of stabilization and crisis management, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something that it it comes out of the kind of out of the same curve, out of the same corner, if you want to, um, like like the the other Afghanistan, like the Afghanistan bailout. I hope that we can twist it into a direction to say, 
yeah, this is the kind of, you know, second generation of international crisis management. If you take a look into operations like Iraq, that is already a different story. We have learned a lesson after 16, 15, 20 years of Afghanistan already, and we started implementing it. But it's a kind of, a, I guess there, there's a temptation in Germany to, to have a, to, to at least tell us a story that we can have made a clear cut with Afghanistan, which, which was from the beginning an unwanted or unloved war, uh, which for the US has been also for a long time, but here it was almost from the beginning, something where we didn't know where this Afghanistan is and we didn't want to be there. Yeah. Maybe one, one little sentences on that, because we have sometimes the debate here, what is the, the next scenario? What is the next crisis management operation where we will participate or where Germany might be called upon? Um, and if you, if you simply look at the structure of our armed forces, the reforms that have been undertaken in the last years, particularly since 2014 and the annexation of Crimea, the German armed forces have returned to collective defense. With the right. White Book of 2016 um, and then the, all the documents that actually put that White Book into practice, um, the German armed forces have kind of really returned to collective defense in terms of training equipment and everything. So if you look at the armed forces, the answer is clear. That's collective defense. So I think we also have a kind of disconnect between the political kind of public debate um, and what we actually what we actually have at home, if I might say, at some point. Um, and also, if you look if you look in, in in terms of threat analysis, I think the real serious question is where are going, where, where does the international community want to go, or what is the kind of next kind of likely likely scenario where we would go? So I think to some extent there is a disconnect with what we debate in the public and what we what we where we put in the way we put our armed forces. Um, and what we are planning. Um, but maybe that's just one more sign that um, the German debate on secure defense has evolved clearly over the last years, but there's still some way to go. Right. Well, I think we probably could have kept going with this theme and we, you know, Christian was talking there at the end about technology and innovation and we didn't really get to pull on that thread, but um, you know, I think this was a really incredibly useful discussion to get us started thinking about and understanding what the next coalition might look like. And, you know, we didn't answer the question about the first kind of crisis that this new coalition will face, but my hunch is that it's going to have to do with Russia. And, I, you know, I guess I put it, you know, we're seeing all the signs and the U.S. government is warning very loudly and I think credibly about what um, could plausibly happen. And I think, you know, it'll just be a matter of days before the White House and the U.S. administration is knocking on the on the on Germany's door, saying, "What is it that you will be willing to do? That what can we credibly, you know, threaten to deter Putin from taking these steps?" So I think that is coming down the pike, and uh, you know, I think you know, we'll be talking about that for for months to come. So hopefully, mm -hmm. we can check in again, you know, after um, a couple of months in the saddle. As you said, this is just kind of the words on a piece of paper and implementation will be a very different thing. So I think it would be great to check in uh, in a couple of months time and see how things are shaping up and, and what they're looking like. So thank you so much for breaking this all down for us. It's, in, it's hugely informative um, and I'm sure our listeners are very thankful as well. Yeah, thank you for me. This was, this was, this was great. And I, I look forward to our, the next time we can dig deeper into this as well.